Brought to you by Feitner Productions. From the Unreasonable Doubt Studios, in association with Feitner Productions, this is Laying Down the Law with your host, Billy DeClerc, and co hosts, Lauren Michaels and Curtis Rutherford. Featuring a jury of genius jokesmiths and paneled with the help of Publishers Clearinghouse, auditors from the firm of DCH Lottery Management, and selected by random draw from a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar every Tuesday and Thursday at half past never. Only a madman would bring these people together to construct an entire virtual world of law and order simply to tear it asunder with ruckus laughter. That madman is attorney Billy DeClerc. The result is a podcast blasted to the farthest reaches of the interwebs. That podcast is this one, and it starts right now. Welcome to Laying Down the Law, the law and comedy podcast hosted by me, Billy DeClerc. I'm the product of a hot summer road trip where Dana Carvey and Ruth Bader Ginsburg visited Seattle, Washington, New Orleans, ending up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, I am co-host Curtis Rutherford. I am the product of a road trip from me to myself and on into I. I am the host of Improv Beat by Beat and a member of uh, Megaplex here in Los Angeles, along with a bunch of other teams and other things. Hello, I'm Lauren Michaels, and I am an actor and stand-up comedian. I have an open mic now on Tuesdays at 6 o'clock. But that's for later for shares. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's welcome our first guest. She's an actor, improviser, and writer who's been featured in the video game Mafia 3. She starred in films like So Much Yellow and Product Dead Zone. Please welcome Dana Blazingame. Hello there. <laughs> welcome, Dana. Thank you so much. I am very excited to be here. Let's welcome back a for real law school graduate from the Windy City, Chicago. She's a storyteller currently based in Austin, and she can typically be found hanging out with North America's largest urban bat colony. She is Kristen Drenning. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. I'm thrilled to have you all here. But before we get to the law stuff, let's take a break to promote some good stuff. Here's the story of coronavirus, when the government was clearly unprepared. All of us had heard the dire warnings, and we all got scared. It's the story of a world pandemic, where we all were told to lock down in our homes, with lots of hand washing and social distance. Now we are all To overcome our doom and gloom We might die alone without some human contact That's the reason we all meet by Skype and Zoom But you're on mute, you're on mute You can scream into the void Cause you're on mute You're on mute! Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. There it is. And are we ready to get into it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's explore the case of the week. 
Hadley versus Baxendale. Hadley versus Baxendale. It's an 1854 case out of jolly old English, the Court of Exchequer, and it's a contract case. It's involving a broken crankshaft. And if you ask me what a crankshaft is, I'll tell you I don't know. Oh, oh. crankshaft. The claimant or plaintiff was a Mr. Hadley and another, and they were Millers and Mealmen who had a partnership as proprietors of the city steam mills in Gloucester. Gloucester. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. G-L-O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R. Gloucester? Gloucester. 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 Right with the dialect. You got to try it with the dialect. Gloucester. 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 That's it. I think you got it. It's key to the case that we understand how to pronounce the name of the city. It's at, you know, you're going to fail the bar exam if you don't get the pronunciation exactly right. There's the, the, um, start working on your RP. mm -hmm, That's right. (laughs) Apparently, what they did that Hadley at the city steam mills in Gloucester is they cleaned grain and they ground it in a meal and they processed it into flour, sharps, and bran. Sharps? Yeah. There are multiple parts to wheat. Okay. Not all of it's flour. Sure. Some of it's bran. <laughs> you put it on cereal, helps with your digestion. And the sharps are, um, that's what you have to dispose of in the bathroom safely. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Biohazard. Yeah, there's biohazard. Yeah. So uh, this is in the days, the 1800s, and the steam engine had a crankshaft, which operated the mill. It broke. And uh, because the crankshaft broke, the mill couldn't run. Seeing as how there was no crankshaft repairman in Gloucester in the mid-1800s, they had to send it to Greenwich. Not just known for its time zone. Famous for for its time zones. (laughs) Lots of clocks, which um, naturally uh, expands to crankshafts and clockworks and gears and essentially just a lot of machinery in uh, Greenwich. The steampunk dream town, I guess. Steampunk dream town. <laughs> I think I said, wasn't that show on Netflix, Steampunk Dream Town? <laughs> I believe it was a it was kind of an anime thing with the you know elements of German expressionism. Okay, so they had to send the crankshaft to the company Joyce and Co. And they were gonna get a, a totally new one made. So this is a model. They hired a shipping company, the 1850s equivalent of FedEx. Um, called Pickford and Co. And Pickford was owned by Baxendale of the Hadley v. Baxendale. So, mm. so a defendant alert, defendant alert. Baxendale's the one we're after here today. And so Baxendale, the owner of Pickford and Co., was hired to ship the crankshaft from Gloucester to Greenwich. So they charged two sterling and three shillings to ship the crankshaft. Now, one of the points of contention here is that the whoever was responsible for dropping off the crankshaft apparently told Baxendale or someone working for Baxendale that the mill was completely shut down and the shaft must be sent immediately. Remember, all operations had stopped at the mill. So there was no flour, there was no sharps, and there was no bran being created. It was just piles of, of unmilled wheat and no product, no profit. Hadley was told... If Pickford, the shipper, got the crankshaft before noon, it would get to Greenwich the following day. Um, kind of the the uh, Domino's Pizza of the 1854 uh, time frame. Yeah, how are they shipping this? Is this on a? I assume it's an old, broken down donkey. 
like it on its back some, or does it have yeah a, someone i don't know so, pulling it yeah like, um fast enough they could get it there the next day well yours is 18, again? well the case is 1854 so a few years before that about 1850 so it could be maybe did they have could train? be train steamboat horses could just be a gradual are these downhill? water cities i know oh, probably yeah. not <laughs> They're I all water cities in England. We need a visual. Yeah, we're all displaying our total ignorance of um, British <laughs> geography. Okay, so we have the crankshaft. It's not working mm -hmm. uh, at the place where the grain is refined. The city steam mills in Gloucester. Right, and so City Steam Mills is owned by the same company that owns uh, the transportation service. Ah, okay, so we got three. No, no, no. Yeah, we got okay. three. Basically, three parties. You got Hadley who's the owner of the city steam mills. He's the plaintiff in okay. the case. You have Baxendale is the owner of Pickford and co. They're the ones that are going to take the crankshaft up to Greenwich to be repaired. The Greenwich folks, okay. they don't even get involved in this case. Baxendale's company Pickford says to Hadley, get us the crankshaft by noon. We'll get it there by noon tomorrow. And don't bother us about how we're going to get it there. We'll get it there. <laughs> so Hadley does what, Baxendale asked him to do and delivers the crankshaft to Pickford before noon and pays the two sterling and three shillings uh, to ship the crankshaft. Yes, Kristen. Well, really quick point of clarification. When uh, like he was apprising him of the need to get it there by tomorrow, did he tell Baxendale at the outset that he his mill was not running? According to the case summary, yes. So there was a there was a communication by somebody that the mill was not operating. Mm -hmm. Important fact. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. why I bolded it in the outline. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sterling's and three shillings. Yes. Hadley delivers the crankshaft, says to Pickford, take it to Greenwich bef um, before noon tomorrow. And they pay the price. For some reason, we're left in doubt. It could have been the tide. It could have been the selection of route or the potential vehicle that was chosen. But for whatever reason, Pickford, well, to put it bluntly, shat the bed. And they didn't deliver it on time. It took them several days to get it there. So as a result, the new crankshaft was delayed by several days. Um, it took because it the you know it needed to go to be modeled or whatever they do to make crankshafts in Greenwich. And for all that time, the mill was closed. Without the crankshaft, they couldn't operate the mill. They couldn't make any money. And so they sued for damages for the negligently delayed shipping. And they requested lost profits from the delay. Remember, the shipping fee was two pounds sterling and three shillings. Part of the damage award, it was not the whole damage award, but the question that's presented in this case and the reason why we're talking about it and law students for centuries have talked about it. The jury gave Hadley damages of $50 for lost profits. The money that Hadley would have made if his mill was operating those couple of days that the shipping was delayed and Hadley put in evidence of how much profits he would make per day. The jury figured you have a few days of lost profits and Baxendale, the owner of Pickford and co the one who delayed the crankshaft should have to pay that. Now Baxendale appeals this ruling and says, it's not on us. Your lost profits are not on us. That was not part of our contract. And I didn't have any reason to know that you'd be particularly damaged because of a late delivery. It wasn't foreseeable to me. 
Um, now, remember, there was evidence that somebody told somebody that the mill was shut down and the shaft must be sent immediately, but it wasn't part of the contract. So the question here is, in a contract, can the defendant, the breaching defendant, be liable for lost profits? Because at no point, ba like Baxendale wasn't like, oh, I'm going to send this today. Don't worry. And if I don't send it today, all your lost profits, I'm paying. We're not going to put that in the contract, but I'm telling you verbally. He didn't even say that. He was just like, I'm sending it today. And then that didn't happen. Right. And the evidence is I that mean, Baxendale himself, the owner of Pickford & Co., didn't even necessarily know that when he- Oh, sure. He contract. was in the upper rooms screaming. He was upstairs counting you know. his bags of gold. Yes. You know. Wealthy shippers in the 1850s, you know. Yeah. yeah, so it's not the Domino's pizza rule. No 30 minutes or it's free guarantee. Which I think, by the way, they, they got rid of that because there were too many auto accidents. The drivers were, yeah. were, were forced to pay the for the late delivery fee. And so they were running red lights and taking out pedestrians. In the way. I believe it was bad social policy. The very foreseeable. Now, now they outcome. pay you to... Pick up your pizza. Oh, is that what they do? And if Domino's you don't pick it's it up like in thirty minutes. You have to pay for it. If you come and get it, they they try oh. to they try to relabel what pickup is, and they're like, "We'll pay you to deliver your own pizza." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is less like Domino's and more just like every interaction I've ever had with FedEx and UPS ever, mm -hmm. where they do not deliver on time and say, uh, "I don't know, we didn't get to it." Oh, we tried to knock softly on your door, but nobody answered. And so we'll deliver it in a couple of weeks, or you can come to our warehouse in Oklahoma. <laughs> Have you ever been on the receiving end of those like out for delivery texts and you wait? Oh yeah. For oh. hours you wait. It doesn't lie. get delivered the next day out for delivery. Still. I thought I was out for delivery yesterday. You wait, cool. you wait. Ah. Oh. The anticipation. Yeah, you're, you're popping it popcorn feels like waiting by the front door. Totally. You're like checking your windows. You're like, I heard something. <laughs> I always ordered a t-shirt that like made it to Austin and then like, and was out for delivery and then volleyed back to San Antonio for no reason. <gasps> I don't live in San Antonio. Then back to Austin. I'm not kidding. Three times ping ponged before finally I like contacted the post office. And then it was in my mailbox like within an hour. <laughs> it was like bizarre. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think most of those like updates, the out for delivery, are just part of like a social experiment they're <laughs> yeah. doing on us. Like, <laughs> how long are they really going to assume it's out for delivery if we just say it? Expectation. And you call. You know? Yep. And they're like, oh, well, if you haven't gotten it in five days, in five days, then reach out to us again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or if you like come to San Antonio good, and yeah. pick up your shirt, <laughs> it's free. That it's free. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sure I can only imagine twenty five dollars, but if you come to San Antonio and pick it up, it's only twenty three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> what a deal! Honestly, that's what they've conditioned us to like to be like just like jump at that kind of like what a great deal for us. That's great. I, I do have a question though, which is like, is there any sort of like notion of whether like in getting this contract in the first place, like Baxendale? like affirmatively promised like something because he knew that they needed it right away. I mean, isn't there like inducement to this business at some point? Like, well, I think that's part of the controversy about the case since this is British is controversy right. uh, over the, over the cases is there is some indication that um, that Pickford and co at least knew that this was, that they were being relied upon to deliver by a certain time, but they didn't guarantee to deliver it by the next day. Apparently, he, it was informed 
but it wasn't a guarantee. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the problem without having something in writing, you know? Gotta... Right. Even if he had guaranteed, lost profit seems like, unless you both, I guarantee, and if I don't do it, I'll give you your lost profits. Like, are lost profits automatically then part of a guarantee? Like, if I guarantee I'll do something by this date, does that mean, okay, then whatever you lose because of my guarantee, I have to pay? Is that part normal? The term that is used here is the t- term of foreseeability. Uh, so was it foreseeable that there would be lost profits? And what the court of exchequer reason is that the lost profits aren't necessarily foreseeable. Now, it's a question of perspective of what's foreseeable and to what extent and by whom. But the contract right. itself, the court holds, when two parties have a contract, which one has broken, the damages that the other party ought to receive as a result of the breach should be those damages that fairly and reasonably be considered arising naturally in the usual course of things from the breach of the contract itself or the things that the parties contemplated at the time they made the contract would be the probable result of the breach of it. Okay, so basically the two things are this is something that we know is more or less definitely going to happen. Please pay me that. We knew this was going to happen. I was going to get charged 20 bucks if this didn't happen. And it did not happen. Please pay me the 20 bucks. That was the first part. And then the other part is we agreed on something separately from that. Right. It's what's the damages that are flowing naturally from the breach. And how do you limit those damages? It's those things that were foreseeable by the parties at the time of contracting. So in looking for what's foreseeable to the parties at the time of contracting, they're not looking at language exterior to the contract, like the fact that they talked about this, the fact the mill not, is not running. They're looking more at like, what's the usual order of things for people in the similar situation when making these kind of contracts? Because otherwise, I don't see why it wouldn't be foreseeable that these kind of damages would result, right? Well, and isn't that how cases end up in law textbooks? Usually yes, they're wrong. Indeed. That's how they end up. They don't seem right. It's weird. <laughs> when you have here, the contract was, this is what I think is going on here, is the, the contracts for two pounds sterling and three shillings. And the, the damages were, were a total of 250 pounds. Um, so it's a very high damages for this loss. And yeah, I, I need that converted. A million dollars <laughs> and a gajillion dollars Where's more. Where's our... Um, we're always doing <laughs> currency conversions and laying down the law at some, cause they're really old cases. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just think, think about it in terms of today. If you, you paid, let's say you paid a hundred dollars to ship something. It's Oof. 10 times. No, sorry. A hundred times, 150, 250, that's 200. 100, so it's about 120 Lauren, times this? the damages. So a hundred dollars of shipping. Lauren, imagine that it's like 7,000 tuppence. <laughs> But then it goes up to like 40,000 tuppence. Yeah. See, Curtis doesn't I know that a bag of bird feed is a tuppence a bag. That's so, exactly. So you can, uh, you can picture mm-hmm. that. And then there. if you put those tuppence, How many tuppence in the bank? Yeah, you can, you can build a railroad <laughs> off of it. Isn't that right? I think I've seen that show too. <laughs> Captains of industry start with tuppence. In fact, I think Pickford & Co. started with tuppence. So it's two pounds sterling with 50 pounds worth of lost profits. Um, so I think part of the foreseeability calculus here that that the court's thinking about but not explicitly saying is that 
How in the heck could Baxendale have any idea what the profits from a grain mill, daily profits of a grain mill are if they don't contract for it? Right. So if, if Hadley had walked in and said, I'm losing 12 pounds a day in profits from this broken crankshaft, I need you to get it there. And I'm, I want you to ensure that you'll get it there. Possibly Baxendale might've charged more. He might in mm. more than, than two, two pounds sterling and three shillings. He might've said, well, it'll be 20 pounds. They didn't have expedited. Right. As an extra. Right option when you order they you know insurance of you know so so there would have been some aspect of insurance so so the person who's in the best position to predict the loss is hadley he knows what his profits are he knows what the daily losses are and so if he wanted to ensure that he got it there as soon as possible then he could have contracted for that and he didn't he said i want it there he says i'm i'm shut down um it must be sent immediately or somebody said that but that's not part of the contract and so the court said somebody's going to bear the loss. And essentially, the party who is in the best position to foresee it could have contracted for it. A lot of this kind of sounds like um, Hadley needing to uh, ask for what he needs, you know? That is so true. Uh, <laughs> At the same That's why time. this is in case law and also emotional support law. I, yes. I do feel that way. Yeah, there's some aftercare missing here. But um, but I mean, think about it the other way. Isn't like if those people are saying, come like take use our service, use our freight company, ye old FedEx, when they are trying to induce people to to work with them, then they have some sort of duty to know what they're contracting for too. Because if you're courting that kind of business, mm -hmm. then you probably should protect yourself by having some idea what kind of profits are on the line. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's probably the reason today, if you ever took the time to read your FedEx or UPS contract of shipping, uh, you know, it's like 10 pages of liability disclaimers. Like you can't count on us for lost profits. And, you know, if you're counting, you got to get getting there by a certain time. Um, you know, even who was, who was the shipping company that you say when it absolutely, positively, definitely, absolutely, positively, certainly must be there by tomorrow. Was DHL? I don't know. Some some but some shipping company had that ad. That might be uh, problematic contractually, and I'm sure the contract says asterisk. Also, if it doesn't get there tomorrow, it's on you. The issue here is that either the either the contract had to explicitly cover delivery by a time certain, and Baxendale or Pickford and Co. provide some kind of insurance that if it doesn't get there by this time, we're gonna cover your losses and the parties negotiate in advance for that eventuality and explicitly make it a part of the contract or it has to be a naturally foreseeable consequence flowing from the breach of contract or sometimes called resulting or consequential mm -hmm. damages. And here the court says, nah, you know, I don't, how could Baxendale really have known that you were going to be losing so much money from your millery being shut down. So with the foreseeability, it's not just that Baxendale knows that they're losing money. He has to know like how much money or that it's a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the point the point is that it's foreseeable. Well, this is why the case is kind of on the line, right? It's foreseeable that there would be some money being lost if they knew and if they you know, like we're counting on you to get this this crankshaft there. Um, and we're like there's there's obviously some discussion around it. But yeah, I think that that where the court's looking at this here is how you know how could Baxendale have known the amount of the damages or what the losses were or what would what would occur to Hadley if if they didn't perform the contract. Gotcha. Because Baxendale doesn't know if this is a heart attack or heartburn. He's just like, uh, whatever, right. a couple days, I'm sure is not that bad. All your wheat and your sharps are still oh, and there. And what kind of They're granary doesn't anywhere. have an extra crankshaft hanging around? Thank you. I mean, I've seen that on bumper stickers these days. What kind of granary doesn't that have means- a crankshaft hanging around, an extra one? That has a very specific meaning to a very specific subgroup. Mm-hmm. Right. What I want to know is who got him the first crank. Where'd the first crankshaft come from? <laughs> that was so false. That's a good question. And why with. didn't they sue them for That's the original crankshaft bring, breaking down? Probably there was a express limitation on liability or, or it was beyond the warranty. It probably they mm, maybe they're so. out of business. Yeah. Maybe they're not even. There's nothing in the pot. Even it was a local crankshaft builder. Now he's got to go all the way. People thought yeah, Apple like computer that. invented planned obsolescence. It wasn't. It was crankshaft makers <laughs> in the 1850s that were like, "This is going to last five years exactly. You're going to have to replace it." The Greenwich crankshaft makers. <laughs> this, idiot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. this is also pre like the whole like assembly line standardized thing where it's like oh i make crankshafts that looks like about a three meter crankshaft they were just kind of like whipping up whatever and then if it broke whatever there wasn't like you could go part 17a right or you know it's customized like at the same time like okay so if you were say that you are like a like a kind of a sly cunning mill owner you could also hypothetically go the other way and and build in all kinds of special circumstance damages into a contract and if the other guy isn't in a position to know what's natural and what's not, then maybe you could get a ton more damages from them just because you put this all in like very explicitly, even if it's not the ordinary course of business. Right. right. I mean, absolutely. That's part of the the role of case law, you know, the, is that the next contract that's formed aware of this, the parties are supposed to be informed. So it's the, the prospective application of the law um, informs future contracts. So if, you know, you go to your lawyer and say, um, you know, I need you to draft a contract for a shipping. Say, oh, I have read the case of Hadley versus Baxendale. We need to deal with the foreseeability <laughs> of your lost profits. That'll be four shillings for me to repair this contract. But it's, in, it's supposed to incentivize parties to behave in a certain way. The, 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 the policy underlying this aspect of the law is that this is incentivizing the party with more information to bargain for the things that they need in a contract. So if Hadley really wanted to ensure that they were going to get the, the crankshaft by the you know next day, they needed to address that with Baxendale prospectively and say, I'm going to be losing 12, you know, 12 shillings a day or 12 pounds a day of my lost granary. I need it here by this certain time. In which case, Baxendale said, well, if you need it here by a certain time, you know, we're going to give it extra special expensive shipping. We're going to charge you more. Um, and that way, the parties are controlling more for the outcomes. They're controlling their own destiny more and not relying so much on the law and lawsuits providing additional terms, which is why contracts tend to get longer. It's not just Microsoft Word that mm-hmm. causes contracts to get longer, but also the application of case law. 
And so here, if you're the lawyer preparing the next contract after Hadley versus Baxendale, you're going to say, well, you know, under the rule of Hadley versus Baxendale, we need to account for what happens to lost profits. Are you going to, are you going to ensure that um, it's going to be delivered by a certain time, or are you going to have a limitation on liability to make sure you don't get sued um, and say, you know, mm -hmm. we're not responsible for delivering it by a certain time or certain place. And so that contract term then um, helps to allocate the risk of the loss. Interestingly, the idea of foreseeability that we're talking about here also plays a role in tort law. And if you listen a few episodes back, we talked about the case of Helen Pulsgraf. And Helen Pulsgraf got injured when a pair of scales fell on her on a train station. The reason the scales fell over on her on a train station was because two guys ran onto a train, they jumped, they missed, they were carrying a covered package. The package was explosive. The explosives fell on the train tracks. The dynamite <laughs> they're taking on the train oh, explodes, it's, sends it's a shockwave across the entire train station, which then knocks the, <sighs> knocks the weights oh. over on her and crushes her. Whoa. And did she like a, survive? She did. She was severely injured, but she did survive. Helen Paulsgraf. Um, <laughs> the Paulsgraf family actually is highly traumatized. But the idea in that case, the train company was not liable, even though it's stevedores, the people who are pushing and prodding these people and cause the fireworks or dynamite to explode, were negligent. They weren't responsible for Helen Paulsgraf because who could have known? If two guys running, carrying a package that's covered up, jump on a train and that falls out and that falls on the train track and that explodes and the shockwave knocks over a pair of scales down the, that's not foreseeable at all. But Helen Paulscraft used her experience and made the game Mousetrap, <laughs> which we now we have. <laughs> what? Exactly. Helen Paulscraft no. married into the Rube Goldberg no. family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it led to a very successful career of cartooning and game design. This concept of foreseeability <laughs> is the idea that it's like, okay, we can accept whatever the court says is like roughly logical to foresee. Well, this is the trick of courts is that, and the, the criticism of this case by uh, Fuller and Purdue talk about how foreseeability is one of these terms in the law that we think supposedly means something, but what's foreseeable is very much so in the eye of the beholder. I mean, who could have predicted scales falling on Helen Pulsgraf? You know, when somebody's jumping on a train, that's probably the outer extremes of what might be foreseeable. I mean, I guess anything can happen on the train station. On the other hand, with dominoes, 30 minutes or less, it seems like most of us were able to foresee what actually happened, which is vehicular manslaughter across the country. Right. And so Fuller and Purdue argue that these standards we have in the law, foreseeability is one of them. Another one is the standard of the reasonable man. The reasonable man shows up all the time in law and, you know, pardon the um, sexist history of that. <laughs> but the idea of the reasonable person, <laughs> the idea that there's someone who wears a, obviously a not too flashy tie. It's a very sensible breakfast. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that the reasonable man is just the straight man and a sketch scene. Is that right? Right. Essentially, yeah, yeah the voice of reason in a sketch scene. They're the abbot to the Costello of the world of law. You know, just they're wearing a tie and, you know, they just, just, you know, rolled up the shirt sleeves and they watered the lawn. And, uh, you know, a reasonable person because the law, we just, we have no way of predicting certain things. And so this idea of, well, what's foreseeable, right. it, we put ourselves, we imagine 
put ourselves in the position of the parties when they're contracting at the outset. And well, what could they have foreseen? Well, the question is like, I mean, what's the reasonable freight uh, carriers? You know, like, I mean, how often did these people work with other mills and things like that? I mean, right? Yeah. Doesn't that I- impact the calculus? I think so. And I mm-hmm. think that that I think your point, Kristen, is really well taken that it, that if this is a crankshaft, if you know anything about, you know, as I do very much about, you know, steam operated milleries, everybody knows with no crankshaft, your steam operated millery doesn't run. I mean, that's just common knowledge. Anybody would have known that. And so, you know, Baxendale should have known the mill is going to be shut down. This makes me wonder though, like in cases like this, then is it, are these, is this something that would be, you know, tried in front of a jury or would this be, you know, just between a judge? Like how would, how would something like this, who would be the person kind of projecting their perspective onto what is reasonable? You know, that's a great question. And we're going to take a step out of contract law and step into civil procedure. The general idea is that the judge's role is to decide questions of law and the jury's role is to decide questions of fact. And so whether or not, typically, whether or not something is foreseeable or whether or not something is reasonable is a question of fact, generally. And that's the idea in a civil trial. The idea is you bring in the voices of the community to decide what's reasonable, what's foreseeable. How do we apply this kind of loose descriptive standard to the things people actually do? It's possible, and you could make the argument that the jury in this case, thought it was reasonable and foreseeable that Baxendale should have known that the mill would be shut down. Where the judge steps in is that it's so extreme. It's so unforeseeable. It's so unreasonable that we can decide as a matter of law that under the facts presented, nobody could conclude that it was foreseeable. Now, does that make any sense? No. But there's this idea that that there, in some cases they say no reasonable jury could have found X, but this jury did, so they must have been totally unreasonable. They were they were cuckoo bananas. They was uh, they were spiking the juice in the jury room. They were drinking the Kool Aid that was provided by the prosecution. Nobody knew what was going on. They were bat shit out of their head, jury. Can you just call a mistrial for like, I don't know, like this is this is a bananas. This jury. is a yeah, exactly. It's just it's a motion. Your Honor, I move for a mistrial. This jury is absolutely bananas. I saw I saw three of them eating bananas at lunch. One of them's eating a banana right now, Your Honor. Absolutely. It's a cuckoo bananas case. In this particular case, what happened procedurally, I'll just back up a little bit, is so there's a trial, and at the trial. Hadley asked for his damages and part of his damages were the lost profits and the jury decided to give them to him. So then Baxendale goes to appeal and the appeal goes before just judges and the judges say, that's not foreseeable at all. These are, uh, you know, law talking people. They don't have any experience with mills and they think it's totally or with shipping or boats or donkeys or however you got a crankshaft from Uh, Gloucester to Greenwich. Seems like an important detail. (laughs) Well, now we get into, you know, you get into the idea of expert witnesses. When does an expert need to be helpful to help you figure out how long it takes or what's foreseeable? And who is the actual person driving the the boat or the donkey? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Too many breaks. uh... Yeah. 
What state were they in mentally, physically? Yeah, what was the gambling problem? And we don't get we don't get in in into the question of why Baxendale was negligent. And but it could have been that the jury considered whatever Baxendale did was so stupid that you know that they deserve to be hit with damages for lost profits. Like no reasonable uh, transporter of crankshafts would ever have taken several days to to move it to Greenwich. So the, the issue is this foreseeability test is that you can essentially define what's foreseeable and what's reasonable based upon a whole host of factors that aren't part of the law. It's really what the judges think. So this hypothetical person who's doing the foreseeing becomes a complex personality. What can this hypothetical person foresee? And in what situation? And, and what's, what's foreseeable here? And what's foreseeable there? And this idea that, like, who is this hypothetical person that's doing the foreseeing? All of it's a long way around of saying that it's up to the decider, really, what's foreseeable and what's not. A little bit of a roll of the dice. Who you get is the decider. It is. And this is what's happening in the case of Hadley versus Baxendale. What the criticism is saying is that we're just sort of applying the perspective of some random hypothetical person who supposedly knows what's reasonable and what's foreseeable. And how in the heck are you supposed to define that person? All right. So thoughts, Hadley versus Baxendale, correctly decided, wrongly decided thoughts, opinions. Let's just go around. One more time. The final, how much did he get? So in at trial, Hadley got 250 pounds sterling. 50 of them were for the lost profits. The court of exchequer reversed the 50 pounds of lost profits. Okay. Uh, so Kristen, yeah. what do you think? Rightly decided, wrongly decided thoughts, comments? Well, I think it's good precedent to say, to like to say, hey, if you want something and it's a special circumstance or something kind of unusual, just write it out. It always helps to be more clear in your contracts, right? But at the same time, I think that it's kind of manifestly like, ignoring some of the evidence that shows that like this wasn't really like totally unforeseeable at all. And it's sort of disingenuous by pretending that you have to be able to like write out every special circumstance because you can't be exhaustive in that list. And this guy clearly had some idea that they needed it done quickly. That's why they gave him the contract in the first place. So mixed, mixed bag. For me. Okay. Dana, your thoughts. Uh, so just to be clear, did uh, Baxendale, was Baxendale awarded the 250? Was it Sterling? Okay. So Hadley was the plaintiff. They were the owner of the mill. Right. Baxendale was and the they owner didn't of the transport company. The jury found in favor of the plaintiff, Hadley, the mill, the owner of the mill, well, because okay. the, the transport company was negligent in and they were late. Um, right. So Hadley did receive 250, 250 right? pounds sterling. The only sterling. issue on appeal was. And wait, sorry, I have a question because just kind of like reconciling it. So did he receive the 250 or he said he lost 250 in profits and then received 50 of that 250? Ah, just a point about civil procedure a little bit. If you ever serve on a jury and you get a special verdict, the verdict can be divided into different kinds of damages. So you can have damages from breach of contract, consequential damages, attorney's fees, um, or if it's an, let's say it's a car accident, it could be like loss of the car, personal injury, pain and suffering, emotional distress. 
So there are different categories of damages and you add them up. In this case, if I'm not mistaken, there was a total damages award of 250 pounds sterling. Some of it, obviously, you know, the two pounds, three shillings that was paid for the contract, that's kind of a no brainer, right? You, you said you're going to get it there mm. by tomorrow and you got it there several days later. So I'm going to get my money back because you breached the contract. That's the obvious category of damages. The less obvious category of damages are these consequential damages. Well, not only did you not get it there in time, you didn't do the thing that I hired you to do. I hired you to get it there tomorrow. You didn't get it there tomorrow. You breached the contract. But what we have here, the issues, these consequential lost profit damages um, that, you know, a 50 pounds from the loss of the use of the mill that resulted from the breach of the contract. The jury said that Hadley should get it from Baxendale and that the court of exchequer or the appeal court said, no, you don't get those 50 pounds of lost profits. So in the end, even though the jury decided that you get this, the judge overruled that, mm -hmm. right? And said, no, you actually don't get that because the jury was not- The jury was wrong. What, like- yeah. Yeah, it was just wrong or not in the sound. You know, they were not the impartial perspective. Yeah, they know. announced a rule of law. Basically, they said under the law, the law doesn't award damages for lost profits. So you don't get that. Wow. You know, I don't know how I, I honestly, I think what would have been fair in the situation would have been uh, compensating, I guess, for between the time that they said they were going to have it delivered for when they didn't, you know, I think that would have been a fair call. Although I do agree that it would have been good if Hadley had stipulated exactly what he needed and by what time and stated, this is what I will lose if I don't have that. But that's sort of like, Oh, he probably learned that the hard way, you know? Uh, and then on the other hand, it's like, I can understand why that's a slippery slope, you know, for, is it Baxley? I Baxley. believe. But also, they also had the opportunity to to clarify that in their contract negotiations as well. So, you know, hopefully, it was a learning opportunity for everyone moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dana bringing the kumbaya energy. It's like everybody right. should have learned from this experience. But I think that is really the one of the policy points here is that the understanding of past of what happened informs future contracts. And so, in the future, you need to contract for the things you want to get out of a contract. Yeah. I guess another question is sort of like that it brings up is like, how difficult would it have been for Baxendale to get that information? Like how available was it to know like what the losses of profit would be? Cause like, it feels like that's something that they ought to be able to get, but I guess there's, we're just saying there's no duty for the person who's being contracted with. It's not their line or their area. Like they, they don't, there's no incentive for them to know anything or have specialized knowledge, right? Like if it's going to only count against them, in contracting. Yeah. And it's shipper would say, oh, well, I'm a shipper. I don't know. I don't know what the profits of a grain mill are. Although if, if it's from the perspective of the shipper and then they are doing something like charging extra as insurance, you know, and then if that's kind of a standard thing that they apply to each shipment, assuming that they don't have to pay any of that back. Right. And assuming that nothing goes wrong, then they would profit, wouldn't they a little bit from charging the insurance? Yeah, like if you ever sent something from FedEx and said, I, by the way, I don't want you to break this. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, well, that's going to cost like that's you a lot more. You don't want us to break it? Yeah. 
<laughs> we, we typically back over things with our truck. So that's going to cost you help. You know, I don't know. You, yeah, you're right. You can't really uh, get that guarantee because they write that in on the other end, yeah. their contracts. So, All right, Curtis, last word on ha- Hadley versus Baxendale. I'm realizing now this is semi-related to it, but it's very unlikely that this season of laying down the law will be sponsored by either FedEx or Domino's <laughs> based on how we've discussed them so far. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe maybe they're really turning a leaf and are like, we're cool. But yeah, I think my feeling is pretty close to Dana's of like, this feels like a, well, I hope everybody learned something. You, you didn't ask what you needed and you didn't do what you said. So it's... It's like two children, like there's, I don't feel like there's a good, good guy and a bad guy here. It's just kind of like, well, yes, you didn't have a good contract. What's going on? Get better crankshafts, have some extras. If it's that important, have your guy just bring it the whole way. It's 140 imperial miles or whatever (laughs) it was. Uh, Why go ahead and just walk it down. They're not doing anything at the mill. That's, you know what? That's my final my final thought is you you had all these like layabouts in the mill, not processing your flour or your sharps. Have them bring the crankshaft yourself, themselves. Have them load up the crankshaft, bring it on down to Greenwich, bring it on back. They're not doing anything else. They're taking smoke breaks on their elaborate 1850s pipes. They can do it. And then you cut out all of Baxendale entirely. Sometimes you just got to take a long, hard look at yourself. That is that is the moral of Hadley versus Baxendale. All right. When we come back, we're going to do some improv. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. And we're back. Uh, oh, just real quick. Um, Lauren put in the chat she has a heart out at um, 1.30. So, Lauren, if you can just make something of your heart out, just, you know, like, this yes, is bullshit. Yes, absolutely. You don't know anything about improv. I'm leaving or whatever. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair. Copy. All right. You. Honey, you're, you're divorcing me, I, but I'm a reasonable man. I'm the definition of a reasonable man. We just don't see things eye to eye the way that we used to. Well, I I disagree. I mean, sure, we have different favorite shows. That is so like you to just jump in and disagree. You know what? 
I am sick of watching Seinfeld. Okay. I have my favorite three episodes of Seinfeld. They're the highest rated three episodes of Seinfeld. And that's what I like watching. I think. Yeah. I don't and you play them over and over and over again. I mean, that seems reasonable. If you found the funniest show and the funniest episodes, why should I go searching through unfunny episodes of other unfunny shows? For the last six years, huh? Sure. Also, honey, let's can we sit down? Let's eat dinner, okay? Yeah, I made sure, us, let's eat dinner. I mean, yeah, um, Dad, I hope you guys foresee that this is going to cause enduring trauma for me and that I probably am going to end up unsuccessful in life because I had to deal with you guys quibbling all the time. Sweetheart, Mommy and Daddy are having an adult conversation. So if you could just sit and finish watching the soup episode, that would be great. So yeah, honey, we can't have another argument with you about foreseeability, okay? You whatever you foresee in your little child mind, that's great, but we foresee different things, okay? Like I foresee your mom and your dad still staying together and loving each other. And I and maybe- foresee us spending the night at the Best Western near the off-ramp by the Laurel Canyon exit. Not not the sad Best Western. Yeah, because that's where mommy could get a deal. Okay, so I think I'm done with this meal. That's what I think. Oh, please, no, just please, just sit down. Please, just give me. When you first off, this meal, by the way, highly nutritious. It is a very reasonable. It is 35 cents per serving. It is a compressed cheese and macaroni with tuna and uh, fiber mixed in. It is absolutely the the best meal you could get. It is so like you to try and sneak in some fiber. Okay. Well, sweetheart, we're going to let you decide which one you'd like to spend the night with. So I'm going to pack up my bags and, um, you know, maybe you'll come with any reasonable, any reasonable teen would run away for the circus in these circumstances. And that's where I'm going and you should have foreseen it. You truly are my child. Yep. Reasonable to the end. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Step right up. Bob Circus. Uh, we're hiring right now. We're hiring teens. Um, we're hiring kids. We're hiring people. I'm a teen. Teens and kids. Oh, hey there, kid. You're looking for a job in the circus. I'm a teen and I'm, I'm a teen that has run away from a, a horrible home. So I would love to join your circus. Fantastic kid. How do you feel about danger? You got a little Timmy over there. He's got no arm and only one leg. That seems oh, like I love danger. I, I love danger a lot. That kid loves danger. It seems unreasonable, Lee dangerous to have him juggling fire like that. So you're looking for a safe circus with no with no danger at all for the teens and kids that we hire in Maine. Maybe maybe a, a circus where um, where the parents all, or everybody gets along and is nurturing and 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 step, um, right, right, up, step, up, right, step right up, right up. <laughs> Me and my associate will welcome you to the safe circus. The safe circus. Ooh, this looks good. This looks more my speed. Everybody, welcome and enjoy the lion watcher. He doesn't tame the lions. He watches them from about thirty feet away. I'm here in my warm blanket. The lions are very, they're, they're cute. They're cuddly. They're kind of furry. Uh, yeah. So that's what I do. I watch the lions. That's right. And we provide a warm, stable environment. Our number one rule, 
No fighting. No fighting. Oh my God, it's like a dream come true. Yeah. Um, could I, is that, can we have that explicitly written out in our contractual language before I sign on board? Absolutely. We already have a contract drawn up for you right now. We've written it on a pillow. So it's nice and safe and comfortable. How dreamy. You'll notice the vanilla and lavender ink. Go ahead. You aren't I'm taking advantage of a, of, a, of a vulnerable teenager who doesn't know better with these soft scented contracts with extraordinary <laughs> terms. <laughs> you are thinking that we're much too devious just because we're trying our hardest to get a minor to sign a contract. Uh, there's nice. nothing wrong or suspicious of us. Well, okay. Look like suspicious people to you. I'm very <laughs> comfortable underneath my blanket. Did I do good? You did great. You did good. It's very warm, very cozy. The lions are very cuddly looking. I've I've not been mauled once in the last several days. All right, sweetheart. We can't wait forever. There are plenty of children who would like to join the safe circus. I guess I'll I'll, I'll just sign on the dotted line. Um, okay, there's nothing, I can't see any, I can't foresee any problem with this as a reasonable teenager. I'm in. Well, look under the pillowcase and let's look at the rest of the contract. Oh, no. <sighs> wow, oh, you guys, really, you have a lot of very strange contingencies written in here. It's really the limitation on liability that gets you. That's right. If you, let's say, get eaten by the lion, no problem to us. If you get sniffed on by the lion aggressively and you say, I don't know, the lion sniffs you, you crap your pants, you need new pants, we're not liable. No, no problem to us. We're not liable. That's right, sweetheart. Yes, I learned too late that the lion, you know, hurt my feelings and said I was unattractive, but I just had to tolerate that. It was a limitation on the liability. We're not paying for therapy, unlike no, other circuses. But there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. Despite everything in the contract, we don't foresee any difficulties in the future, do we? No, no. It's The contract smells so good, I'm lulled into a false sense of security. Of course you are. Now, come. Come into our tent and... Uh, well, we have a little bunk set up for you with the rest of the children. Oh, wonder how my parents are. Don't think about them. No. All right, rest of children. Hey there, here. be my bunkmate. Hi. Hi. Um, I like to snore, but I, so nobody wants to be my bunkmate, but I would like uh, to snore on you, please. Um, you know what? I the fact that you told me straight out that you're a snorer, I will now actually rely on you snoring every night as a white noise machine. You know, help me sleep. I like it. Oh. Wow, Taste nobody's the new... nice to me before. He's the new kid. Yeah, he's funny looking. Yeah, yeah. He got like a funny thing on the middle of his face. It's like he's been disowned. It's like his parents don't love him. Do your parents not love you? Yeah, they don't love you at all. That's why you joined the Steve Circus. Let's throw our shillings at him. Oh, no, no. Oh. 
Oh, wait, I want those back. I need them saving up for a train ticket. <laughs> oh. Um, is this quick ship venom? Uh, I, uh, I have some anti-venom that I need to ship, like, across town in 20 minutes. Uh, and I saw that you guys specialize in venom shipping. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh. Uh, oh, no, you go ahead. No, oh, oh well, uh, yeah. we've been waiting for somebody to walk in those doors and uh, ask for somebody to- uh, It's a very niche business, Venom Shipping. Very neat, yeah. But uh, that's what's that's what's drawn me to you, is is that you guys seem to, to specialize in quick turnaround on, on Venoms and Anti-Venoms, which- Well, you mm -hmm. gotta be, you gotta be. It doesn't last long on the road. You don't want that shit uh, to spoil out there, you know? Because I mean, I don't have to. I don't have to tell you. You guys know it's life or death. There's somebody who's been bitten across town by a viper, and uh, only this little bottle is going to keep them alive. Oh, we know. That's why we started Venom Ship R Us. Yeah, yeah, we ship the poison, not not the antidote. Yeah. Oh. Right. Oh. I only have the antidote. We're in the business of helping uh, get rid of people. Oh. Right. Huh. So I guess uh, if you're it, concerned about somebody getting a uh, venom, uh, how long has it been? Well, it's been, it's been, it needs to be there within 20 minutes or so where that person will oh, die. Oh, he's gone. Yeah. You're going to yeah. have to, I'd get his affairs in order real quick. You got yeah. 20 minutes. So, you, you know, it's some time to make some decisions. I actually, I honestly, I, I really, I appreciate your honesty. It's refreshing. You know, how many venom places like different shipping companies have told me they could get me that venom across town. Oh, we like, know oh. who our competitors are. Yeah. Yeah, we know. You're also saving us a contractual dance where I had to stipulate every possible thing that could happen if this guy died, died of a snake bite because he's dead now. I mean, there's nothing. Oh, yeah, the contract alone, uh, he's a goner. Yeah, yeah. Several people have actually died while reading the contract it's so long. You, but you gotta, I mean, you gotta protect yourselves. I mean, when you're, when you're doing something high volume, high, high stakes like Venom, I mean, you gotta really be careful. You know, you know this business so well. We've been looking for a, for a partner to join us. Really? Yeah, I mean, Venom Shipping amazing. R.S. You know, this is this is yeah. a growing business. We we have a franchise relationship. You could become a franchise. For, all you would need to do to become a partner and a franchisee with us is pay $10,000 up front. You could open your own Venom Shipping R.S. location near you. You'd be a business owner. Trans that would be amazing. Yeah, transform yourself from an employee to a business owner. And you, I Not mean, only yeah, we've got venom and also uh, the envelope of the contract uh, the, that is poisonous glue. So that's a secret venom trick that we've, we've got coming up too. Yeah. You know, I have long wanted to reconcile my dream of uh, reconcile my loves of both the law and uh, snake fancy. And now here it is, my opportunity to do so. Yeah, it's not a pyramid scheme at all. It's Doesn't a franchise. How could in it? case you're worried, it's definitely not. It's definitely not a pyramid scheme. Yeah, so but just we could get you a, a few bottles of this on your way out, you know, as in a, a case. Is, uh, yeah, just sign this contract right here uh -huh. for your franchise. You can open up your own venom shipping RS. Is that is that lavender and vanilla? So kind of didn't notice. Yeah, I'm excited. Honey, I checked in her room. I checked in the backyard. I can't find her anywhere. 
where could she have gone? There's only, I called, I've called every circus. I don't, I don't know. Well, call another circus. Keep calling. Fine. I think they are tired of listening to me, but I'll call them back. I'll call. Wait a minute. Hold on. Sorry. There's a, there's a brochure for uh sell your own anti-venom. Sell your own anti-venom. I, I think oh. I've seen that stand set up near the train tracks by the fairgrounds. Get in the car okay. or going down there. Driving at 55 miles per hour and signal a lane change and pull slowly into the parking lot and put on the parking brake. Okay, let's run. We have to find her. She's got to still be somewhere here. There's so many anti-venom stands. <laughs> Has anyone seen my daughter? Has anyone seen my daughter? Ship your anti-venoms. Ship your venoms. Ship them fast. Ship yeah, them I mean. quick. Oh, I've Emily. seen your daughter. Hello. Emily. Um, I know I've got just one arm, but can you hear me? Yes. Oh, hello. yes. This little informant. You you've seen our daughter. You've looked at us. Assumed what our daughter. I've seen would her with like. my one good eye. Are um, you from Timmy and I like danger. She went to the safe circuit because she saw my one arm. The safe circus. Where oh, is so the safe circus? Well, she didn't end there. Then she went to. Get this venom contract. She oh, so you followed our daughter. This is all your fault. I told you oh, if you whoa. didn't enlist her in aerobic circus classes that it would come to this. She's supposed to have a healthy outlet. I've said too much already. So I'm going to lick this venom envelope. No. Oh, my God. What? <coughs> oh, oh, my God. That child had one good hand and used it to open an envelope with a, her finger, lick this, the venom, and then, oh, oh, she's still no dying. Oh, my God. Antidote. <coughs> no antidote. Oh. Oh, my child. Oh, no, Deus Ex Machina Exposition. Wrapping everything up for them. You must be looking for this child right here. It's my me. My child, Deus Ex Machina Exposition. Best friend, this I don't know your name. Tabitha. Tabitha, you were looking for your parents and you went to the same circus and now you're here. Yeah. Emily, why are they calling you Tabitha? Why don't not? You know who you are. It's me, your mother. Do you remember me or your father? Do you folks need to ship anti-venom or venom? That's Snap all. out of it, Emily. Oh, reasonable parents. I forgot what you guys were like. Listen, sweetheart, we are sorry. We're so sorry. We know that we haven't been giving you the time and attention that you need, but there's got to be another way. There's got to be another life than this. I, I'm so sorry, mom and dad, that I devolved and I, and I fell down this path of, of snake fancy and circus love. And I, and I, if I could undo it, I would. I didn't foresee how terrible it would get so quickly. Well, we didn't foresee the road that you were going down and how we were both a part of it. 
I think we've learned something here today. Seinfeld is destructive to American families. Absolutely, sweetheart. Absolutely. This case brought to you by Seinfeld, the box set, <laughs> including all three of your favorite episodes. Watch them as often as you'd like. All right. Thank you, guys. That was some that was fun. All right. Well, we're that's about all the time we have for today. But before we go, let's do a little shameless self-promotion. Why don't we? Lauren had to step away. So we're going to let you know that you can find her at L Orange Mike or Sweet Relish Films. Uh, Curtis, where can people find you on the Internet? You can find me at curtisrutherford.com. That's R-E-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D. Uh, or at Actually Curtis on pretty much all of the social media networks, um, except for Truth Social. On that, I'm Actually Curtis with an exclamation point. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Curtis. And uh, Kristen, where can people find you? I, I do not have much of an internet presence. Um, I, you can find me on Facebook where I post some of my improv stuff, but I'm mostly I'm uh, directing and starring in shows at The Hideout in Austin, Texas. At The Hideout in Austin, Texas. Okay, and then where is that Bat Bridge that we... Uh... Uh, the Congress Avenue Bridge. I live right next to it. It's uh, 750,000 pregnant females, and then when they have their babies, 1.5 million mixed-gender bats hanging oh, out. fantastic. So if you want to find Kristen for in real life... Yep. Go down and hang out under the bridge. Yep. Okay. And Dana, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, you know, I also don't have much of an online presence. So just, you know, stay tuned on IMDb. <laughs> I uh, have a game that I'm in coming out next year. I can't really say much more than that, but I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, if you play games, video games, stay tuned. And um, other than that, I think you might find me in Austin at those bat caves. That's yes. pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's been laying down the law, and that brings us to the end of this week's show. <laughs>